In 6 Bible Commentary 1075, it describes the new birth. She says, the new birth is a rare experience in this age of the world. This is the reason why there are so many perplexities in the churches. Many, so many who assume the name of Christ are unsanctified and unholy. They have been baptized, but they were buried alive. Self did not die, and therefore they did not rise to newness of life in Christ. The family today is under attack. Fifty percent of first-time marriages are ending in divorce. The statistics go higher for second and even higher for third marriages. In the Church, the divorce rate is higher, which tells you which group Satan is interested in. My husband and I moved to Sonora, California, in 1998. We started a couples group that lasted for three years. We then started the Christ Quest Institute with a weekend seminar, followed by a three-year cycle of weekly group and an every-other-week video presentation by Christ Quest Institute. This was a program from Life Partners Christian Ministries founded by Ken Nair based out of Phoenix, Arizona. It was a privilege to work with the couples. How true this quote is from, from education. To deal with human minds is the nicest job that was ever committed to mortal man. This morning we will describe problem couples, state some of the principles taught, describe the paradigm shift that had to take place, and then the impact it had on the couples. Example number one, the husband grew up in a very abusive childhood. His father was incredibly verbally and physically abusive. At a young age, he joined the Marines. He was a man's man. In spite of his father, he became a very sincere follower of Christ. He asked God whom he should marry. A girl's name came to his mind. He courted and married her. However, under his leadership, his wife became quiet, withdrawn, and depressed. If she ever opened up, she paid for it. He and his wife came to class because one of his friends had invited him. He was resistant and very guarded. How would you counsel this couple? Couple number two. This husband's missionary father had been unfaithful to his mother. As a result of bitterness, he brought rage and anger into his marriage. Even though he was a Sabbath school teacher, trouble brewed at home. He was known to trash his home in fits of anger. He was easily defensive. When confronted, his flesh would rise as he defended himself. He thought that what happened in marriage should never be discussed publicly. One night, when he was gently asked a question, he got mad and left the group abruptly. He left squealing his car wheels out of the parking lot. How would you counsel this couple? 
Example number three. This physician and his wife traveled several hours each evening to participate. He was first elder at his local church. People looked on them as a model couple, yet the wife felt so alone. His wife wondered if she had married the right man. Her father had advised her to marry him. They both came from missionary families. However, there was constant conflict in the home. He was irritable, critical, demeaning, grumpy, sour, exacting, complaining, unhappy, yet they were in church every week, smiling. The testimony of their grown daughter was that there was always arguing with no resolution. She wondered if they really loved each other. How would you counsel this couple? Example number four was a pastor and his wife. He was well-studied and learned. He corrected his wife frequently and felt superior to her. He was proud and self-righteous. She was suffering under his demeaning, oppressive leadership. She refused to return home with her husband after the seminar. She did not want to return home unless he agreed to participate in the weekly discipling sessions. How would you counsel this couple? Would you have counseled her to go home, be under his authority, just appreciate his good points and not complain? What principles did they learn that were so invaluable as to make the dramatic changes that occurred? How would you run a group of couples at varying levels of maturity, with some even separated? Their wives would not even come to the group. Others had a more mature relationship they just wanted more intimacy. All were professing to be Christians, but the husbands especially were bitter, blaming their wives, taking things personally, so that it was hard for them to be objective. Most of them had a 50-50 mentality that says, you do your part, I'll do my part. If you don't do your part, then uh, I'm not going to do my part. Other attitudes included, I would be a pretty good husband if my wife would change, or I'd be a pretty good husband um, if I had a different wife. They were self-sufficient with a mental consent to the truth but lacked a heart change. However, they all wanted a better relationship. All stated they were willing for their thinking to change based on Bible truth. The following are some basic principles utilized. Number one, the men were told at the beginning that this was a men's discipling group, not a marriage counseling group. The Gospel Commission in Matthew 28 states, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Number two, the goal was to help a man become more Christ-like and to understand the heart of their wives. Men were encouraged to maintain this goal of Christ-likeness regardless of the response of their wives. They were there to please God, not their wives. After all, their wives might suggest doing the wrong thing. 
Number three, women were not to be corrected publicly. It was too hard on them. They were already critiquing themselves and being very hard on themselves. Public exposure would have been unnecessarily devastating. The men were responsible for presenting their wives without spot or wrinkle before God, not we as group leaders. Ephesians 5, husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and blameless. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. Number four, men were to accept 100% responsibility for whatever happened in the home. The same way a foreman accepts responsibility for his employees. The buck stops here. We were not talking about fault. Fault means that you are a problem causer. But we were talking about responsibility, which means that we are a problem solver. Do you hear the difference? So uh, fault means we are a problem causer. Responsibility means that we are a problem solver. So what is a spiritual leader? And uh, there were uh, a lot of misconceptions as to what a spiritual leader was. But this is one of the things that we learned. A man who has the ability to perceive the spirit of another to understand its condition at that moment and know what is required by God to care for that person's spirit in a manner that will increase that person's spiritual maturity. Let me repeat that again. A spiritual leader is a man who has the ability to perceive the spirit of another, perceive the spirit of my wife, to understand its condition at that moment, understand the condition of her heart at that moment, and know what is required by God to care for that person's spirit or her heart in a manner that will increase that person's spiritual maturity. Wouldn't that be tremendous if every home a man was a true spiritual leader? What does that mean to accept 100% responsibility? Many men hear the word fault, and I wanted to, to clarify this a little bit. So we've asked uh, couples, we've asked men, what does that mean to you? And so we, we ask them, is your wife at fault for some of the problems in, in the home? They always say, uh, yes, of course. Then we ask them, are you at fault for the sum, some of the things in the home? They think it's a trick question. And so then uh, we say, yes, you're at fault for some of the things. Oh, yes, yes, I'm at fault for some of the things that happen in our home. They don't want to take all of the fault. You know, now is Christ at fault for the problems that happen to us as human beings, as Christians, as uh, husbands and wives? And they say, well, no, he's not at fault at all. Now, and the fourth question, which is most crucial, does Christ hold himself 100% responsibility? And then um, most of the time they say yes, because that's what the gospel is all about. Christ is our only hope. He became sin for us. He is our Savior. The gospel, the cross, that's what the cross is all about, is Christ taking 100% responsibility. It is in this context that men are taught to be as a Savior to their families. This is having the mind of Christ, which we're going to mention in just a few moments. 
we can agree then with Christ that we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. There's a problem with the good guys um, because uh, so often the good guys are the ones that, that appear like they're a good guy, but they don't necessarily, they're not really truly surrendered in the home. Everybody thinks they're a great guy. Um, what we have, have uh, asked is, what is your motivation? Why are you coming here? Why do you want to come here? If you are coming to improve your marriage, we can't help you. If you want to learn what it means to be like Christ in your home, then we can help you. If it is your fervent desire to be a living demonstration of the character of Christ, we can help you. We, number five, we introduce the concept of the helper, which is the word in Hebrew is the, the word uh, azer. And um, we don't have the, the pictures to be able to show you, but the, the, there's three letters of the Hebrew alphabet or alphabet that uh, comprise this word ezer. And the, the first letter looks like an I with a little uh, pupil in the center. And that word reveal, that letter means reveals. The second um, letter of this word is the letter Zion, which has a Z sound. And that means the axe. It looks like an axe in the ancient uh, pictorial Hebrew. And the third letter looks like a nine. And uh, that means the letter resh, and it has an R sound. And that's the word for man. So the word azer really means revealer of the axe man. Now, who would be the axe man? In, in Scripture, when they uh, put uh, words like that, uh, letters together, it has a special meaning. And axe man in Hebrew means enemy. So this is a revealer of the enemy. Um, Genesis chapter 2, 18 describes the concept. It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. Elsewhere in Psalms, it, it describes, um, I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. That's the same word, and that's referring to the Holy Spirit. So the helper is used for the Holy Spirit. This means that God uses the woman Sometimes it's a little hard, but I'd encourage you to, to listen carefully and ponder it. This means that God used the woman to reveal when a man is not representing Christ's likeness. It is just in her. It's just part of her. She's designed that way. Wise is the man who listens to his wife and takes her into consideration. This is a key concept in understanding our wives. A helper, then, is someone who reveals how we are not demonstrating Christ-likeness. A helper is someone who reveals the enemy, which is self. This allows wives to play the role that God intended for them to have in the home. Men and women tend to treat each other as the enemy, especially when there are serious problems. They begin to have adversarial roles and build walls, big walls. But God appointed the wife to help the man see how he is not like Christ. And so this is the concept of the helper. And it is a powerful concept. When you start listening to it and you start making application personally, it transforms your life and it transforms your way of looking at, at your wife. It transforms your way of looking at women. Uh, some of the couples, when they're in their early stages, they, they can hear when the, the wife of one of their colleagues is, uh, is, is making a comment to her husband. She's being a good helper. And they can see the value in it but they don't necessarily at first see the value for them, for their own wives. But when you can begin to see the value for yourself in your own marriage, that's when you really start having some exciting times happen. And, and God is in the business of changing us, isn't he? He doesn't want to leave us the way we are. 
Number six, your desire shall be for your husband. Now, this is a, a part of the curse. If you uh, are acquainted with the uh, passages there, um, in uh, Genesis chapter 3, this begins with verse 7 and onward. Uh, then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool, in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and my, I hid myself. Now listen to how God dealt with Adam. Did he say, Adam, you have sinned. What in the world are you doing? Instead of doing that, he said, Adam, where are you? Here he asked him, um, and then he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree which I commanded you that you should not eat? Now, did God know whether he had eaten of the tree or not? Of course he did. But that's the way that God deals with us. He goes and he listens, and he asks questions. Whenever you ask questions, you usually know the answer. But you're wanting to see whether they're going to answer the correct answer or not, whether they really understand uh, the situation or not. Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So here we see already Adam blaming God and the woman. The woman whom you gave to be with me, she made me eat. And then Eve said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. And so this is the curse. And we're just going to mention the curse to the women uh, because the curse to the men, that's a mechanical curse. It uh, describes, um, you know, tilling the soil, and they're going to do it with the sweat of their brow. But to the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. Has a lot of women been one of sorrow, and especially in conception? In pain, you shall bring forth children. Is it painful? Have you ever known of a woman who did not have pain in childbirth, except if she had, you know, an anesthetic? Uh, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So here's the passage. Your desire shall be for your husband. What does that mean? This is a word teshekwa in Hebrew. And in the original sense, it means a stretching out after a longing for. A stretching out after a longing for. Now this is found in three places in Scripture. It's found here. It's found also in Genesis 4, verse 7. Its desire, referring to sin, is towards you, but you should rule over it. And then in Song of Solomon 7, 7 verse 10, I am my beloved's, and his desire is toward me. And so when we look at those passages, not any of those really help us to understand what this is meaning. Because um, if, if we, we were to, uh, this is going to be a curse. So to be a curse, it has to be cursed, doesn't it? And so if, if it really meant that your desire should be for your husband, so a woman desires her sub husband sexually, and for a man, that's the number one thing on his list. Would that be a curse? No, that wouldn't be a curse. And so then, um, so then if we, as we put it all together then, within the context of a curse, your desire shall be for your husband. So a woman looks to her husband for value and affirmation. Now, if she looked to her husband for value and affirmation, and he, and he listened to her, and he said, oh, yes, and he affirmed her. He showed her value. He, he let her feel like she was just the most tremendous person in the whole world. If a, a man did that, then would that be a curse? No, that wouldn't be a curse. That'd be tremendous. 
You know, but the, the curse part is that he doesn't have a clue how to give you value and affirmation in his self, with his, in his self-centered mode of, of, of operation. And so your cravings for value and affirmation shall be for your husband, and he will not understand how to value and affirm you. That's the curse, and that's a curse. It's a relationship motivation that a woman has in the curse. And we can tell that women get together, they talk about, what do they talk about? Talk about their families, they talk about their husbands, they talk about their children. We get together as men, what do we talk about? We talk about cars and motorcycles and skiing, those types of things. So we have a group of men and their wives who are living in the flesh, who have very little power in their lives and are stuck. If a marriage is in trouble, someone is in the flesh. We conceptualized the problem as Laodicean. They know not that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The problem is not that they are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The problem is they don't know it. They had to be led to see their helpless and hopeless condition. They had to become spiritual-minded and cry out, as Paul did in Romans 7, I am of the flesh sold under sin. Only a spiritual man would say that. By watching each other, they began to see the defensiveness and self-justification that was so prevalent in the men. They saw the hardness of their hearts. We encouraged the women to speak out in an effort to help their husbands. The other men saw the earnestness of the women wanting their husbands to be Christ-like. They saw, they saw how foolish a man looked resisting his wife's efforts. Slowly but surely, the men would begin asking themselves, do I have as little understanding of my wife's heart as I see demonstrated in the other men? Could it be that I lack understanding also? They gained objectivity in each difficult situation by asking the question, what is God trying to teach me through this? And in fact, if there's one, if just one thing you take from this seminar, take this question with you. When things get rough, ask yourself, what is God trying to teach me through this? You immediately become objective. The men saw that they consistently underestimated the impact they had in the marriage. And this was something we had to repeat week by week over and over again. You're underestimating the impact you have on your wife and family. Eventually, they saw that their wife was not the enemy, but their God-given helper. Slowly, the men as a group became humble. Instead of the volatile, angry, tense group, that went on week after week, the men began to realize their hopeless, helpless condition, that they needed a heart change. They needed a supernatural work in their lives that would come only by a surrender to the will of God. They had to die to self.
Mount of Blessings, page 16, tells us. It is love of self. Love of what? Love of self that destroys our peace. While self is all alive, we stand ready continually to guard it from mortification and insult. But when we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God, we shall not take neglects or slights to heart. We shall be deaf to reproach and blind to scorn and insult. Wouldn't that be tremendous? I remember being told as a young man um, that we need to guard a man's ego. What does the word ego mean in Greek? It means self. That it, the ego is real fragile. We need to be real careful with a man's ego. Is that true? In reality, the, the, the ego needs to be crucified. Self should be crucified. So toward the end of, the, of these uh, three years, the group became like a prayer meeting with personal testimonies of how victories through, through Christ were occurring. Daily Bible study was occurring. They accepted Christ's death as their death. They daily began to rise to newness of life because Christ was resurrected to newness of life. The overall principle of the ministry was dying to self. We had a group of men who did not understand how to die to self. Many times they would be volatile. In order to counteract this, we had them direct questions to the leaders only. Ultimately, the groups became a living demonstration of God's power and what happens in a family when a man humbles himself, confesses his sins, and cries out to God. Now remember, we did not correct the women. We wanted the men to see what power they had in their own families. I'd like to go back and review now the uh, uh, couples that we, the examples that we gave you at the beginning. If you remember example no, number one, the husband grew up in an abusive uh, home, a childhood, and his father was very abusive verbally and physically. He joined the Marines as man's man. About two and a half years into the program, his wife was discouraged. Challenged about bitterness toward his father, he said, I'm not bitter. By this time, he had learned by watching other men's wives that wives do have something valuable to contribute. She agreed he was bitter, realizing that his relationship to his father was presenting him from bonding with his wife. And under encouragement, he wrote a letter to his father. He'd never done that before. And he listed several things for which he was thankful. Thankful. He was thankful for his father's work ethic, having taught him how to be careful with his work and do things properly and do them well. He uh, thanked his father for his faithfulness to his marriage vows. He never had known of his father to be looking at another woman or for his father to even uh, wander. Uh, he, he learned from his father the importance of money, the value of money, and how, to be, how hard it was to earn money. He learned from his father um, how to uh, work hard and uh, integrity and honesty. When his mother read the letter to his father, because his father was ailing, his father, a grown man who had never shown any emotions whatsoever, just broke down and wept. From that day forward, 
He was different. We're talking about this husband. From that day forward, from the time that he sent the letter to his father, and he, he got feedback from his mother about the response of his father. Uh, from that day forward, he was different. He was humble. He was gentle. To this day, he has the countenance of an angel. He has taken on a leadership role. And he has sat in many of our groups with us, helping us out. Uh, from an intense, angry man, it, the change has been just incredible. Do you remember husband number two? This is the one where he would rage. He was a Sabbath school teacher, but he would trash his home in fits of anger, defensive, never thought anything in marriage should be discussed publicly. Well, he still teaches a Sabbath school class, but now the emphasis is on repentance and dying to self, on what Christ has done for you and me, that our only hope is in Christ, and that his death on the cross is our death to self. He and his wife are very happy. He finally agreed with Scripture that he was wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. He has become humble. An unexpected benefit has been that his wife no longer suffers the incapacitating symptoms of fibromyalgia. He was previously in hiding. Now he is very transparent about how readily he was living in the flesh and the importance of living in the spirit by identifying with Christ. He could claim Christ's death as his own death to self. He's a, tra he's a transformed man. Remember, the husband number three was the physician and his wife who traveled several hours. And um, he was irritable, critical, unhappy, demeaning, grumpy, sour, exacting. Well, he began to take personal responsibility for his words, thoughts, actions, attitudes, and motives. He began to agree with Christ that he was underestimating his impact as leader on his, homes, on his home by his bad attitudes. He allowed his wife to be his helper, accepting her pointed insight and allowing God to do a supernatural work on his heart. This meant spending time daily in Scripture. He realized he could not do it in his own strength. We recently saw them at camp meeting. Tears came to his eyes when he learned that his daughter had made a very insightful remark to her newlywed pastor husband. The daughter's husband was wondering if this program put too much blame on the husband. Put too much blame on the husband. She made the comment to him, you have to admit the change in my parents' marriage is nothing short of a miracle. And as we shared that, she had never shared that with her father. He just teared up. And he's a changed man. What happened to the pastoral couple whose, husband's, who, whose husband leadership was so self-righteous, whose wife did not want to return home with him? After listening to the classes for some time, he became convicted strongly that he was not letting his wife be his helper. 
he was fighting the Holy Spirit. He was struck by the fact that even he was wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. The blinders came off, and he had a deeply repentant attitude toward his wife. He realized he had not understood her heart at all. He began to allow her to be his helper, as God would have it. His attitude of a learner became profound. She blossomed. By taking her counsel, she helped him by the power of the Holy Spirit to see self alive where he had not seen it before. They have become a team and as a result of death to self have been able to help many others. I'm going to read you a testimony from another group member. This was he, he typed this out about four years ago, and I think you'll enjoy it. I had been enjoying what many had called a blessed life. I was married, had two healthy children, a boy and a girl, and a successful business. Everything appeared to be going just great. Suddenly, cracks began to develop in my seemingly peaceful existence. At work, a discontented employee had been convincing the other employees that if he were in charge, things would be a lot better. He spoke of a four-day work week, more pay, better benefits, improved working conditions, and more vacation. The fact that he didn't explain just how he was going to accomplish all this didn't seem to affect his impact on the other employees. I walked in one day to what I felt was a mutiny in the ranks. I suddenly found myself in a situation that I had not foreseen and didn't really know how to handle properly. At about the same time, a similar event was occurring in my home. Without me being aware that, anyone, that anything was significantly different than usual, my wife began to explain to me that if things didn't change in our relationship, she felt she couldn't stay in the relationship with me any longer. This came as an amazing shock to me. Suddenly I was faced with situations both at work and at home that I had failed to be aware of and was not equipped to deal with. With hindsight, in hindsight, these events represent to me God's faithfulness. However, at that time, it just looked like everything was falling apart. I didn't realize that I was actually taking the first steps on a journey that would give me the answer to my questions and the answers to some much more. Like many wives before her, mine suggested that we see a counselor. I didn't have much faith in marriage counselors, but she insisted, so I agreed. After a couple visits, we both agreed that we were not finding the solutions that we were looking for. However, one pivotal event took place. The counselor suggested that I read a book by Ken Nair entitled, Discovering the Mind of a Woman. I didn't have much confidence in books about marriage either, but I agreed to purchase one. You might be surprised by my lack of confidence in marriage counselors and books about marriage, 
This stemmed from not knowing any marriage that had significantly improved from counseling or books. In fact, my wife and I both found it difficult to identify any marriage we knew of personally that clearly represented to us God's plan for marriage. We believe that earthly marriage is supposed to hold, to model the relationship between Christ and his bride, the church. In 1986, I was a single man serving in a large international missionary organization. When word got around the center that I was engaged to be married, a group of married Christian men serving as full-time missionaries gathered around me to offer their advice. One man spoke up and said, No reason you should be happy. None of us are. The statement was followed by a lot of hearty laughter on the part of the experienced married men. Was this God's plan for marriage? Little did I know that Ken's book was not only going to change my idea of marriage and my opinion of books about marriage and marriage counselors, but that it was ultimately going to significantly change my understanding of what it means to be a Christian man, husband, and a father. Like many married men, I blamed my wife for most of the problems in our relationship. I thought that if she would just get her act together, everything would work itself out. After all, I considered myself a pretty good husband. I had been a good provider and physically faithful. Logically, I concluded that since I was doing a pretty good job, the problem must lie with her. Despite my mindset, I began to read Ken's book, but not really expecting to learn much. I couldn't have been more wrong. From the very first chapter, Ken began to lay out an explanation of why I, as the spiritual head of my household, was responsible for everything that went on in my home. Therefore, any problem in my home was evidence that I was failing to provide the kind of godly leadership that was needed. From the very first sentences, I began to realize that I was the problem and not my wife, and I was failing in the role of spiritual leader in my home. And it goes on. Um, he says, let's return for a moment to the large group of Christian men from diverse denominational backgrounds I spoke of before. If you were to ask them if they really understood their wives, what do you think the response would be? Most likely you would be met with the universal male belief that it is impossible for men to understand women. Yet the scripture commands me as a husband to live with my wife in an understanding way. If I wanted to be obedient to God, I was going to have to learn how to genuinely understand my wife. And he went to the seminar. He went to the three-year um, groups. I spent a lot of time unlearning destructive behavior that first year. The process of learning to have the attitude of Christ in my home for me started not with bringing healing to my family, but with putting an end to destructive behavior. The most obvious need for change in my life was the need to stop conveying critical or condemning attitudes. That I could be critical or condemning in my attitude was something I was not even aware of. And this shocked the women that their husbands could be doing things unchristlike that they were not even aware of. What I needed to learn was that critical and condemning attitudes can be conveyed both with verbal and nonverbal communication. It was amazing to me that as I became aware of how I could condemn or criticize with my words, how often I caught myself doing so. And he learned how to uh, communicate properly 
verbally and non-verbally. He said, by helping me to see my own need before God, my critical attitude toward others is fading away. It is become, becoming much easier to extend grace and mercy toward others as I recognize my own desperate need for the Savior. He was, for three years, he led one of our groups as a leader. Galatians 2 verse 20 tells us, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. This means that I live by the faith of the Son of God, the faith of Jesus. How is that accomplished? It is done by identification with Christ. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8 tells us, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. And this is the identification that we're talking about with Christ. I let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, to have the mind of Christ. Review and Herald, July 7, 1904, is a whole uh, chapter, a whole um, article on genuine conversion. She says, man cannot transform himself by the exercise of his will. We can't exercise our will and transform ourselves. He possesses no power by which this change may be effected. The renewing energy must come from God. The change can be made only by the Holy Spirit. He who would be saved, high or low, rich or poor, must submit to the working of this power. So it can only be made by the Holy Spirit. We can't do it by willing it. And then in that same, uh, in that same uh, article on uh, conversion, she goes on, As a leaven, when mingled with the meal, works from within outward, so it is by the renewing of the heart that the grace of God works to transform the life. No mere external change is sufficient to bring us into harmony with God. There are many who try to reform by correcting this bad habit or that bad habit, and they hope in this way to become Christians, but they are beginning in the wrong place. Our first work is with the heart, and this is what we've been talking about is the heart work. The leaven of truth works secretly, silently, steadily to transform the soul. The natural inclinations are softened and subdued. New thoughts, new feelings, new motives are implanted. A new standard of character is set up. The life of Christ, the mind is changed. The faculties are aroused to action in new lines. Man is not endowed with new faculties, but the faculties he has are sanctified. The conscience is awakened. In 7 Bible Commentary 959 and 960, it describes um, a very important uh, dimension, and we, haven't, we don't have much time to really delve into it. But uh, she describes here, after she has gone and, uh, and quoted, Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. And she describes what that means to hold fast. 
And then, and then she adds, and repent. And I'd encourage you to look that up in 7 Bible Commentary 959 and 960. But this is the part that I wanted especially for us to contemplate. It says, and repent. The life we live is to be one of continual, continual repentance and humility. Not occasional, not repentance once in a while, but continual repentance and humility. We need to repent constantly that we may be constantly victorious. When we have true humility, we have victory. The enemy never can take out of the hand of Christ the one who is simply trusting in his promises. If the soul is trusting and working obediently, the mind is susceptible to divine impressions, and the light of God shines in, enlightening the understanding. What privileges we have in Christ Jesus. So what was the key that she said that we have to having constant victory? The key, she says, is that our life is to be one of continual repentance and humility. We need to repent constantly. Repent constantly that we may be constantly victorious. In Desire of Ages 664, it said, If the disciples believed this vital connection between the Father and the Son, their faith would not forsake them when they saw Christ suffering in death to save a perishing world. Christ was seeking to lead them from their low condition of faith to the experience they might receive if they re truly realized what he was, God in human flesh. He desired them to see that their faith must lead up to God and be anchored there. How earnestly and perseveringly our compassionate Savior sought to prepare his disciples for the storm of temptation that was soon to beat upon them. He would have them hid with him in God. And I want to close uh, with this last paragraph from this continual repentance again. As we see souls out of Christ, we are to put ourselves in their place and in their behalf feel repentance before God, resting not until we bring them to repentance. If we do everything we can for them and yet they do not repent, the sin lies at their door, but we are still to feel sorrow of heart because of their condition, showing them how to repent and trying to lead them step by step to Jesus Christ. Let's close with prayer. Dear Father, thank you so much for the privilege we've had to be here. Lord, may we identify so fully with Christ that we may have his thoughts, his feelings, his actions. In Jesus' precious name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI, Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www asiministries.org or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons please visit www.audioverse.org